and welcome to Cultural Capital for our third and final dispatch from MIF. We're here at day 20 on the final day and we're going to be talking about the films that we've seen in this last week since we, you last heard from us previous Monday. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And joining us again is our very special guest, Anwen Crawford. Anwen, thank you very much for, for making the effort. Thank you for having me once again on the last day. Yes, it's been quite a trying day. We're going to be without our usual co-host, Anders Furs, who has fallen victim to MIF, as so many have fallen in recent days. A shout out to Joe Demet here as well. People have been um, expressing their fatigue in very interesting ways, and um, we're very sorry that Anders can't be with us. Today we're going to be kicking off with a discussion of the Palme d'Or winner Ruben Ostlund's film The Square, which uh, has no more screenings, I don't think. No. Nope, it's done two so far, but it will be getting a general release later in the year. Um, Amon, can I begin by asking what you made of Ruben Ostlund's latest film? I was really impressed by it. It's a very, very dark comedy set in Stockholm mm-hmm. and concerning a curator, director, director of an art museum, yeah. a major Stockholm art museum, and that role is played by the Danish actor. Danish? Yes, Klaus Bang. Yeah, Klaus Bang. Mm. Uh, with various high-billing actors such as Elizabeth Moss and Dominic West in smaller roles. Yeah. It's kind of being built as a satire on the art world, but I think it's more than that, or more interesting than that, in in the way in which it kind of deals with all kinds of issues, partly to do with um, class and relationships, not only inside the art world but outside of it, and the way that we uh, deal with people. It it has a very slight plot in a lot of ways. Yeah, so essentially the plot, just to quickly bring this up, is um, the gallery owner, uh, played by Klaus Bang, also, uh, his name's Christian, has, a, has a, his wallet stolen from him in an early scene and he's kind of overreacts in a, in a way in, in his efforts to get the wallet back but at the same time there's a very important art exhibition that's opening at his gallery uh, X Royal uh, Stockholm I think it's called uh, and so in this uh, this particular exhibit is called the square and inside this particular 4 by 4 meter square there is a, a different rules applied to what goes on and you have to offer help to people you have to kind of act in a humanitarian way essentially according to the rules of the square and so this is, these rules are kind of thrown in, uh, kind of shown up against his daily life when it comes to how he treats other people and, and himself in a way. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and so there becomes this kind of question all the way through the film of, I guess, the kind of hypocrisy of, of glorifying this um, quasi-utopian moment within the square of the artwork. And this notion of help me or I need help recurs mm. and recurs mm. throughout the film. He gets his wallet stolen because there's a kind of setup early in the film where somebody asks him for help and you kind of see this whole scenario play out where it looks like he's being a good Samaritan essentially and is helping a woman in distress but it turns out that that was a kind of setup for them to pick his pockets um, yeah and then he has various encounters with people who may or may not have stolen his possessions mm. uh, and yeah it's it's and there are kind of lots of um, he has various interactions with uh, homeless people and beggars in Stockholm as well. Describing it makes it sound really kind of on the nose, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, difficult. You know, it's, dif- it's difficult, but I think that... Uh, I Probably think something that you can't get without actually experiencing black comedy, right? I yeah, mean, that's like yeah. That's kind of setting, set up of what you need with a black comedy to be mm. successful. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but... Yeah. but 
I think the tone of it was actually really successful in the end and there are some really fantastic set pieces involving confrontational performance artworks. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which mm. are, are really well done and pretty excruciating to watch as well. And some hilarious comedy between the Klausbang character and the Elizabeth Moss character. She plays an American journalist who kind of has a fling with him and yeah, mm. it's um, it's re- I th- I thought it was really well handled. I've yeah. also heard that this version of it may not, in fact, be the final cut, and that right. he maybe intends to make it longer. Whoa, okay. Yeah, it's did already not... two and a half. Yeah, hours. I th- that was my one reservation. Was actually I thought it dragged a little. Oh, you did? Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting. Like, it's always with a purpose. There's never like a wasted scene or anything. But I did feel like okay, we, there's certain points that are kind of driven. I mean, particularly with to do with him and a young boy who mm. shares his name, who kind of becomes a fairly key character toward the end of the film. Yes, yeah. yeah. I think, you know, he's a really interesting filmmaker. I, I guess both this film and his last Force Majeure are kind of about versions of contemporary masculinity that somehow fail or a kind of performance of masculinity. Force Majeure kind of took off from this moment where a husband kind of runs away from a crisis. And in this one, similarly, the Klausbund character is, is kind of failing to live up to the ideals that he espouses. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, and I guess both films are broadly kind of indictments of a certain kind of bourgeois. Yeah, I th- I, yeah, I feel like it's particularly Scandinavian bourgeois. When you see it in the setting of other, like against other myth films or films from other parts of the world, there's a very specific way that there is this suaveness, there's this like partic- mm-hmm. sort of like never, never acknowledged aloofness. And particularly for somebody who's in the role of the gallery director, mm. where you're like making these art, you know, these creative decisions that you you deem and are being reinforced by society that are very important and mm. very key. And so against other films at the festival, like you know, I'm not a witch, or particularly other films that deal with masculinity in other in other cultures, it's kind of it seems even more austere and even more kind of almost brutalist in a way that mm. it treats you know, his deconstruction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and I guess this film in particular, The Square, kind of treads at the edges on these issues which are particularly Scandinavian to do with this kind of um, deeply embedded belief in the kind of state as a mechanism for social welfare but then the ways in which um, particularly in the last few years there has been this increasing kind of right-wing element come up through Scandinavian countries um, yeah and the, and the ways in which I guess um, in some ways there's, there can be a kind of delusion that these countries are more classless than they actually are yeah, or yeah. that everyone is actually treated equally because this is the rule within the square, right? The square of the film's title that everyone will be treated equally and entitled to equal help, which I guess is something that underpins these strong social welfare states in Scandinavian countries. But in fact, the reality is that class stratification and racial stratification still very much exists mm, yeah. uh, and the film you know explores that tension in really interesting ways I think and yeah. I love the fact that the main character's name is is Christian which is <laughs> yes. obvious but you know mm. good <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so I think we both really liked the square yes how, how often would you say that you take women that you don't know very well and have sex with them and be inside them I'm not sure do you not remember them? Yeah, sure, I do, yeah. You know their names? Yeah. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Always? Always, yeah. 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 So what's my name?
What is it? I'm not gonna go into this with you. This is stupid. Mm -mm. Anyone that would know somebody's name would just say, of course I know your name. Name? I know your name. What is it? <laughs> um, Eloise, is, was there a film that you've seen recently that you that particularly stood out for you? Yeah, my number one, possibly of the festival or of the year, I don't know, I saw it two days ago, so I'm still pretty much on a high from it, but uh, was Nocturama, Bertram Bonello's film, um, which has caused quite a stir, I think. Like, a lot of people really love it. I have seen some people who, who dislike it. But basically, Nocturama is a film about a group of, I suppose, teenagers or early 20-year-olds um, in Paris. Um, and what's really interesting is basically it kind of takes place in two parts. So the first is um, you get the uh, indication that they're all participating in a group kind of um, terrorist act uh, to commit a number of terrorist acts around Paris simultaneously. Um, and the second part is the, this group um, kind of taking refuge in, in a sealed environment and kind of dealing with the ramifications of what they've done and like do they um, still um, believe in what they've done after they've done it. Now what's really interesting is that there's, n there's a complete like lack of um, I guess ideological kind of adherence or responsibility in this film so you don't know why they're doing it. Uh, a lot of the film is uh, without dialogue, probably not a lot of the film, but at least a lot of the setup is. So you kind of um, initially just get a, kind of an overlay of Paris. These people moving around Paris to set up um, to set up their their um, terrorist um, activity, um, and so you get no real connection to them and why they're doing it but there's still a real sense of um, empathy I suppose and understanding because they're just you know they're just a bunch of kids basically. Um, what's interesting is that they're set up from a diversity of class backgrounds um, which I suppose makes maybe what they're doing their, their act against possibly like capitalism or, or at least um, hierarchies or governments. What I really loved about this film is just basically it sets up a problem and then you kind of just, it's an experience of tension I suppose, cinematic tension, which is something that I really love. Um, I can recommend this film if you love things like Le Samurai, you know, just wandering around Paris using the metro being really schematic in that way. Things like uh, The Battle of Algiers, that amazing Gillo Pontecorvo film. Um, which deals with a lot of, I suppose, military kind of operations, but at the same time empathises with terrorists, um, which, and I think, really implicates the audience in this problem that maybe, you know, we begin to kind of hate ourselves or hate the director for doing so. I just want to say, uh, Miriam Bale did a, um, who's an American critic, did an interview with the director and said that initially, he said initially the film was titled Paris est une fête, which is the um, French title of Ernest Hemingway's A Movable Feast. Right. Um, Paris is a party kind of thing, I think is how it roughly translates. But um, this, the film was made before the November 2015 terrorist attacks in Paris. And immediately after those attacks, sales went up of A Movable Feast. I don't know why. Right. But he said that he didn't want his film to be affiliated with with real terror in in any way at all, so he changed the title to Nocturama. Um, 
Someone, so, yeah. someone um, described this film to me as being nihilistic. Do you think that's accurate? No, I don't think that's accurate. I mean, I think if you assume that they do, they're not doing it for any reason, then it would be. But I think there's there's, def- there's this very interesting conversation that occurs in the second half of the film where there is the suggestion that, you know, these terrorist attacks were inevitable, that something had to give in society. So I don't think that, it's, that they're doing it for no reason at all. They're not just doing it for kicks, you know. Um, so I really don't think so. I mean, I, I kind of maybe get that comparison when you watch... Yeah, when you watch it, if you consider it in a particular framework of capitalist kind of outrage, possibly. Um, but anyway, I, I really love it. It's a really great soundtrack, great use of pop music um, and um, brilliant dancing, uh, which I know has been quite popular, I think, on Twitter at least. Um, <laughs> use of the Persuaders theme song at the end, which is really, you know, such a great piece of music in itself, but just very interesting in terms of um, what it's doing right. with okay. history. Anyway, excellent. I love this film so much. Okay. Um, well, speaking of soundtracks, there was a film that you guys, you two both saw mm-hmm. that had a live score, which is something we haven't really talked about much here, is the retrospective section at MIF. The sci-fi section is one of the big, uh, the, the big chapters in this, in this year's MIF program. Mm-hmm. And could you just briefly talk about the film that you, you saw? Yeah, so we saw, um, I actually didn't know that Arnwen was there, but we saw Elita, Queen of Mars, a 1924 Soviet picture, I think. I don't know, who's the director, Arnwen, are you? I am trying to look that up right now. Um, Anyway, it was a 35mm print that came from the NFSA, which was brilliant, and it was live scored by a Melbourne music group, The Spheres, kind Mm, of post-rock. Were you familiar with this film before? I had seen it, yeah. Oh, you had, had you? Um, I had a few years ago. I couldn't remember all that much of it, but I remember the costumes. The costumes were amazing. Those <laughs> yeah. pants, there were these pants that kind of just look like, I don't know, like those wire back scratches. You know, do you know what I'm, anyway, <laughs> yes, sorry. Yeah. I'm gesturing put, for those yeah. of our I'll put a link to a picture of okay. this in the show notes. <laughs> anyway, but they're pants. Um, so yeah. yeah, it was really great. This kind of, um, you know, Soviet era um, revolution um, criticism of um, the bourgeoisie sort of, thing but also a suggestion that you know this the future is um the future is you know ours belongs to the workers yeah 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 so the film was directed by Yakov Protazanov and it's based on a novel by Alexei Tolstoy made in 1924 a lot of the film is really about uh kind of relationship between a inventor engineer character who is trying to invent a spaceship that will take him to Mars and his wife who he suspects of having an affair with one of the other characters so there's this really interesting dual narrative going on in the film where the kind of earthbound narration largely revolves around this possible kind of love triangle and then we get these amazing scenes set on Mars with these incredible constructivist costumes and sets Uh, and Alita the Queen of Mars is kind of spying upon the earthlings essentially Uh, and then it culminates in this amazing sequence where the spaceship does go to Mars and essentially the uh, yeah the two earthlings including the 
kind of mad scientist engineer who we've seen all the way through the film inspire a a revolution amongst the the underlings of Mars. Right. So this film predates Metropolis, but in fact uh, pivots along similar lines. Really? Yeah, okay. with this kind of revolt of revolt of an underclass yeah. upon Mars. Uh, yeah, and ends in kind of triumphant Soviet terms <laughs> with the um, you know hammer and sickle. I, I really loved it. I thought it was a really well put together film. Um, the soundtrack was really interesting too. Maybe at times not quite responding to the film as much as it could have, but it was really great to see. And the print was uh, mm. in really good condition. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah and and I I, re- I have really enjoyed this sci-fi bar overall. I've seen a few of these retrospectives. The other one I really enjoyed this week was um, The Tenth Victim with uh, Marcello Mastrioni and Ursula Andres, which again had a fabulous, not a live score, but the film's score is one of those fantastic kind of kitschy light jazz electronic things from the early 1960s. Uh, it's a film that really anticipates a lot of kind of reality TV and stuff like that. It, it, the, the scenario of the film is that in some kind of future, um, everyone is divided into either um, hunter or victim and basically everyone is playing a gigantic game. It's like the Hunger Games, but it was made, you know, invented 50 years before the Hunger Games. So there's this kind of corporation which sponsors this televised hunt. um, And in this future, there are no more wars because everybody is involved in this kind of corporate sponsored televised hunt. Uh, And yeah, so Ursula Andress and uh, Marcello Mastrioni kind of play the hunter and victim. It's hilarious you know kind of fantastic costumes amazing sets it was filmed partly in rome and partly in new york wonderful kitschy score mm, sounds fantastic yeah, yeah. have yeah. you seen it eloise yeah, yeah i have seen it yeah. it's great fun yeah it is great fun um in the sci-fi stream Anwin and i also saw joseph losey's these are the damned yes. Um, yes which i wanted to talk about last week but then we ran out of time anyway so yes. Anwin and i sort of afterwards exclaimed like that was very odd yeah um <laughs> but i think i really love it um, now, okay. kind of thinking about it in retrospect. So it starts like just, you know, as kind of a small town um, English 1960s, you kind of think it's going to be a bit of like a gang warfare. You've got this group of people in motorcycle jackets, including Oliver Reed, the leader of the <laughs> gang, who will forever be Bill Sykes to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he's brilliant, kind of a bit, um, he gets a little bit um, empathetic bit empathetic at the end I think anyway basically it sets up this gang and they just like you know kind of use um, Bill Sykes or not Bill Sykes Oliver <laughs> Reed's sister as bait to to get um, rich men and steal their wallets um, you know through a number of um, plot elements that I don't really understand I have to say they end up at this um, kind of nuclear f- or this secret government facility and it spend the rest of the film trying to figure out what it is and they discover this this group of like 11 children I think um, who are very cold so explain they're very cold so you think oh are these um, you know are these are they dead are they dead are these zombie creatures yeah. um, are they in- indeed like fake children um, at the end it's revealed that it's basically a film about communist paranoia or nuclear war paranoia um, possibly communist paranoia anyway and I love that genre of film so the ending is very poetic um, returns to the ocean long shots of the horizon um, has a similar kind of hopeless like utter hopelessness ending of utter hopelessness much like um, 
something like on the beach, which mm. we've talked about yes. on this podcast yeah. before. Um, you know, all of these people are, are dying, and it's like, you know, are they? We try. The scientists are trying to set up a world that will be able to exist in nuclear war, but you know, the idea is that this will never happen. That yeah. no one will ever actually be able to survive, and so it's very depressing in the end. But I thought it was really excellent. Yeah, the ending really pays off. It ends on mm. a real note of. At the moment, uncannily still relevant, bleak, mm. nuclear annihilation is coming our way. Um, but it takes a long time to get there, and and and, and the convoluted setup involving teddy boys and mm. biker gangs, you know these. You, yeah. you, you have to stick with it until the various threads come together. Yeah, but the I last, agree. I wish there was more of that ending. Yeah, you know, yeah. That, um, the last 20 the minutes or so was yeah. really terrific. Mm. Um, but, it, you know, it takes a long time to reach the payoff. Uh, but really, really interesting uh, nonetheless. Yeah, um, specifically, com- especially coming from Losi. Yes. With his blacklisted history and exactly. really mm. difficult experiences in America. Yeah, mm. and I believe he made this film the same year that he made The Servant. Oh, right. really? Yeah. Wow, yeah. Yeah, which is I love. It's such yeah. an amazing film. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so a film that really stood out for me was a uh, documentary as uh, last year with Miff, like my my favorite film of the whole um, of the whole festival was called Sunita, a documentary about. Oh yeah. Yeah, which I don't know if anybody. I sort of think I've actually had a conversation about it with anyone who's seen I it. I haven't seen it. No, 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 it's pretty hard to find. I think, and this year I think it's going to be this, a similar th- situation where um, a documentary that almost no one has seen is my standout, which is a, in this case it's a documentary called Bobby Jean about this dancer called Bobby Jean. Smith, who in uh, a bit of backstory we get in a conversation, moves from Iowa to Juilliard to study dance, and then when she's there she finds this Israeli dance teacher called Ohad, who um, teaches her in this unusual style of dance he's, begun, he's invented called Gaga, and she goes to study with the Bathsheba company in Tel Aviv and spends the next nine years there, and when we meet her at the beginning, she's just about to turn 30, she's got an Israeli boyfriend, and she's decided that she's going to go back to America, and, this, and she's had a relationship with Ohad in the preceding years. And he seems to be quite happy that she's dating another of his dancers, called this man called Orr. Um, and so basically the documentary has... Uh, best documents her um, move from Tel Aviv to San Francisco, where she's teaching dance at Stanford. Uh, and she's starting to do productions of her own in New York. And the, the key thing is, uh, is the style of dance Gaga is very much about effort. So it's about effort and strength and pleasure. So it doesn't have any of the grace or poise that you would associate with dance movies about ballet or anything like that. A lot of the movements are um, like extreme tension, sudden movements. It almost looks like she's beating herself up at times and never quite making contact with her own body. And she's, she becomes obsessed with this particular gesture, which is throwing her hands up above your head over and over and over and over and over. And this is this kind of emotional uh, thing. So there's uh, a warning that comes with this in the MIF program, which is, contains scenes of explicit nudity. And there is a part of her, this dance scene, that she uh, creates uh, has her grinding up against the sandbag to be on a point of orgasm. We're fully clothed. And then another scene where she does it nude. It, uh, when she goes back, there's a scene where she goes back to Jerusalem to do this dance in front of all these um, people at this Israeli dance co- dance festival. And the whole thing is really, really emotional. I'm still unsure as to why, or the relationship between Elvira Lind, who's the director, and Bobby Jean Smith, because it seems to be extraordinarily close. So there's a point where she's decided that she's going to. She talks to the camera and says, "I'm going to propose to Orr tonight," and then we we go then we go and see them go on this date, and we kind of the camera's just there in the face the whole time. There's a lot of shots, like very intimate shots of them having uh, Skype conversations naked. There's just it just seems unprecedented this level of access. I've never seen anything like it. So this film won three awards at the Tribeca Film Festival for editing, cinematography, and best documentary. 
and I don't know if it's going to get a wider release here, but... Um, I'm very interested in it because you have um, said a whole bunch of stuff uh, about, you know, it, it being invested in it and it being this incredible dance it is, documentary, it's really, yeah. so I'm really keen to see it now. I, I hope that someone will screen it. Mm, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one to sell because it is a lot about dance, but it's also about an unusual form of dance. It's about a, a woman who is... She's never really that open. You just kind of watch her responding or acting rather than getting sitting down and having a conversation to you know, emotionally engage you, which she does through dance quite well anyway. Mm-hmm. But I imagine there must have been thousands of hours of offcuts to be able to get the scenes that they got in this. And that film's called Bobby Jean. And uh, another documentary which I think you saw as well, Andy, which I thought was pretty impressive was The Graduation, mm, yeah. uh, which won Best Documentary at last year's Venice Film Festival. So this is a film by Claire Simon, and it's a really kind of Frederick Wiseman style fly on the wall documentary about the incredibly arduous admissions process to La Femme, which is a famous film school in Paris. And this is an admissions process that takes about five or six months, I believe, and hundreds and hundreds of budding, not just film directors, but all kinds of kind of aspiring filmmakers apply to go to La Femme and you know, in the end they take a handful. So this film really kind of uh, follows this process and again was really impressive in terms of access. So we kind of sit in upon panel interviews and auditions and, you know, so in many ways it's a film about cinema, Mm. uh, but really well done and, um, yeah, really engaging in terms of these kind of discussions that we get where a whole bunch of I guess prominent uh, French filmmakers and film industry people are interviewing these hopeful students and and kind of psychologizing about them for half an hour at a time based on kind of five minute interviews and things like that so you know it's a really I, I guess I guess for me particularly having been to art school twice and I guess being the student on one end of that process it was interesting to think my god this is what happens behind the scenes you know all these people are kind of uh spend half an hour in a room talking about you after you've left the room <laughs> yeah and microanalyzing you know gestures or pauses or whether you're whether you can recollect a favorite film or not yeah <laughs> that particular scene with a girl from Cote d'Ivoire yeah <laughs> it's, it's yeah incredible yeah. um yeah I th- yeah it's such a it's a wonderful film and I think anybody who's really into cinema will really get something out of it yeah for sure for sure it's really it's 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 about two hours but it, it's it's really engaging and I think quite easy to watch mm, yes and there was an awful lot a lot of um cigarettes smoked I've never seen so many cigarettes smoked in an institution before great some of the best scenes were just watching people's Perhaps faces just after, they just, after yeah. they've seen an interview and just exhaling smoke <laughs> out a window and just thinking yeah um, another film which I'd like to mention, which is not a documentary, but which uh, I found to be a real standout, was a Thai film called By the Time It Gets Dark. So this is the second feature by the filmmaker Anocha Suwicha Kornpong. And she was actually here. She was a guest of MIF. And I missed her Q&A after the film because I had to run straight to another film. But she did a short introduction to this film. And she said at the beginning, my advice to you is to try not to put the pieces together because it's not what the film is. And that was very useful advice. This is a really interesting, experimental, exploratory film, which in some ways is an investigation of uh, a real historical incident in Thailand, which was the massacre of students at Tamasat University in October 1976. 
And so the film begins, well, the film begins with what looks like these events, shall we say, but it's quickly revealed that this is a filmic reconstruction of those events. And it's really a film about, again, it's a film about cinema. It's a film in which multiple films are happening, but you only realize that slowly. One of the main characters is a filmmaker who is trying to make a film about a woman who was a student during that time and who became a kind of spokesperson for the student revolutionaries. And then as the film goes on, it takes all kinds of really interesting directions. Uh, reincarnation comes into it. There are actors who play multiple roles and you see them over and over again. Um, hallucinogenic mushrooms come into it. There's an amazing soliloquy by one of the main characters about telekinesis. Um, yeah, look, it's a difficult film to explain, but really worthwhile if you're prepared to just go with it and, as per the filmmaker's advice, not try to, I guess, reorganise it into any kind of linear narrative. But there's Sounds a, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's been recommended to me by quite a few people. Yeah. Also, excellent title. Yes, yeah. yeah. There's, yeah. A, there's a key line at the beginning, towards the beginning of the film, where the woman who was a survivor of these student massacres and was part of the student movement talks about seeing photographs in the newspaper of what the army and the generals had did and she said I couldn't believe my eyes and this is a kind of key notion of right, can yeah. we believe what we see how does cinema reconstruct or perhaps misremember versions of history yeah it's a really thoughtful intelligent piece of filmmaking and the kind of film that I would probably like to see again I think would reward multiple viewings in terms of the kind of complicated nest of Russian doll mm. films within films that are happening here but I really hope that it surfaces somewhere again perhaps at Acme in Melbourne perhaps at Golden Age in Sydney because it's yeah it's really worthwhile fantastic thank you it's great is there anything you wanted to mention before we finish Spore, Agnieszka Holland's film, which I have already like talked about being excited about on this podcast. But I just, I don't have all that much to say about it, but it was very good. It was a little bit silly in parts, but also, you know, really beautiful. Actually had kind of began to overuse its musical score, I think, but in the opening moments presented it as one of the best scores, I think, of the festival that what I've heard. What is it about? Uh, what is it about? It is about a woman uh, in her perhaps early 60s. She's a part-time teacher. Um, in some, uh, uh, you know, kind of isolated village somewhere and it um, perhaps takes an entire year, the film, you know, it's kind of in uh, chapters of hunting season. So it's about her and um, this woman um, tries to defend the animals in the region against um, both legal hunting season and um, illegal poachers who kind of, you know, hunt the wrong the wrong animals outside of their um, legally kind of sanctioned um, seasons. Um, it's a little bit of maybe noirish, like murder mystery type of thing. Um, she's quite funny, you know, there's this... It's just really nice in that it allows this older woman to have uh, space on screen and to kind of have these occasional romances and um, it's a little bit not experimental but I think you know kind of uses um, memory and um, kind of fantasy in a few interesting ways right. um, okay. plus a lot of just really beautiful photography of wilderness and animals um, 
and deer particularly. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so cool. I love that one. Okay. Thank you. Um, well, that brings us to the end of our final dispatch from Myth. We've got other movies to see before the end of the day, though. Uh, so we'll be back next week with a discussion of Girls Trip, I think, and perhaps mm-hmm. a discussion about these remaining films we're yet to see. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us online at the Cult Cap Pod on Twitter or the Cultural Capital Podcast on Facebook, or you can email us at culturalcapitalpodcast at gmail.com. Hope you enjoyed Myth. Yes. Hope you weren't, you didn't fall victim to it like so many of our friends. Thanks a lot, Anwen, by the way, for joining us. Oh, thank you. I just want to give one final shout out to BPM, which I ended up seeing twice, and oh, which was really? definitely my film of the festival. Great, okay. Great. Everybody see it if it gets yeah. released, which it probably won't. I'd love to too. Oh, yeah, before we go, do you have a film of the festival? Uh, I think it might be Knocked Around. Sure. Great, okay. So we're just going to do a postscript uh, myth uh, discussion with Anwen about a film that became the closing night film for the film festival, D- the documentary of Dr. G. Unipingu's life, which ran with a different name before his passing. So Anwen, this um, sounded like it was a, a really loaded screening. Yeah, it was. So this is a film directed by Paul Williams, a documentary about the life of Dr. G. Unipingu and... This film was announced as the Closing Night Gala perhaps two months ago and unfortunately, very unfortunately, last month Dr Unipingu passed away and so the festival renegotiated whether or not it would screen this film at all um, and were in the end given permission by Dr Unipingu's family to screen this film. Uh, So this was actually a really well-made film about the life and the musical career of Dr. G. Unipingu, who, as many listeners will know, was a very prominent musician from Elko Island, a Yolungu man who was involved in Yotu Yindi when he was quite young, and then involved in the Saltwater Band, and who then went on to have a very successful and prominent solo career and made three albums under his own name and toured around the world. The thing that was most impressive about this film was really the access, again, that the documentary makers had. They had clearly worked with uh, Dr. Unipingu and his family for quite a long time. So there was a lot of really incredible footage filmed uh, in and around the Elko Island community um, of ceremony, funeral ceremonies, initiation ceremonies, um, and just his kind of daily life. So. The film did a really um, good job and a very sensitive job of really trying to dig into um, the life of somebody who, as many people in the film said, came to occupy two worlds, both a really um, traditional world of Yolungu ceremony and culture and law, and who, as he got older, kind of bore increasing responsibility, uh, uh, you know, as a member of that community for the traditional songs and the knowledge of that community. 
but also somebody who ended up being very prominent and very celebrated in non-Indigenous or uh, to use the Yolongu word, Balanda culture and you know this tension came up again and again in the film and, and there was some really um, you know in many ways uh, kind of excruciating moments of particularly um, on tour for instance and particularly overseas where these two worlds really you know there, there was kind of no no way for them to meet and uh, you know music industry people and celebrities and the whole kind of media machine with expectations of a musician that Dr. Unipingu was clearly not willing to fulfill in terms of becoming part of this yeah, huge kind of uh, music industry PR machine. Um, but it was also very funny, you know, it gave a really kind of interesting portrait of him as a person um, and particularly his friendship with um, a man called Michael, whose last name I have forgotten. Is this the one who runs Skinny Fish? Yeah, music? yeah. yeah. Uh, with his friend Michael, who ran Skinny Fish, which was the music label that he released his music on. They had a really close friendship together. Um, it was very moving in the context in which it was screened because he has died so recently um, and the film was preceded by speeches from several people including his family members. Um, David Junga Junga Yunupingu was there at the closing and um, made a speech about the film but also indicated that um, as far as the family were concerned they were regarding this as a private screening and because of Yolngu morning protocol, the film probably will not be seen again for at least a year, possibly more. I am sure that it will eventually get a cinema release, but I think it will be delayed for some time now because of cultural protocol. But when it does surface, I think it's really worth seeing a really successfully made documentary. Right, okay. Thank you very much.